The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. I'm Kara Schillen, Lawfare Podcast Editor, with an episode of Rational Security for December 31st, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled The Unboxing Day Edition. In this episode, Anderson and Jurassic sat down with Benjamin Wittes to discuss topics submitted by listeners, including how courts can enforce a gag order against former President Trump, what Prigozhin's death means for the Wagner Group in Africa, what advice they'd give to folks just starting law school, and more. This is Rational Security. Guys, I think this is maybe the very first transcontinental Rational Security episode, as we've got both coasts and the middle of the country covered, but not that time zone that Alan's often coming in from. But other than that, we got most of it covered. I think we should invite Alan to pop in for a moment so we can have the central time zone covered and then ask somebody from Alaska and somebody from Hawaii to pop in <laughs> so that we can we can say we've covered all U.S. time zones. See, I'm mostly excited because uh, as Molly Reynolds and I have become obsessed with the fact that uh, John Eastman's emails as produced to the January 6th committee are for some reason all in mountain time, despite the fact that he was not on mountain time. And so now we have Scott on mountain time. Mountain time is a state of mind, you see. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, you're like, oh, it's kind of high altitude. I'm not thinking that's that clearly. Right. Your, your mind gets a little fuzzy. The laws work differently at a at a certain level of oxygenation. Yeah. You can't bake shit. It's exactly. It's the same idea. Altitude's complicated. So, okay. So what altitude are you at, Scott? I am I a am mile high, officially, in Denver, Colorado. Every time I come here, I feel like complete garbage for the first 48 hours because the altitude really gets you. Like if you're just not raised, I'm I'm from the DC swamps, man. I'm a swamp creature. I like a little below sea level is about where I live. Uh, and this is a big adjustment for me. But once you get used to it, it's gorgeous and wonderful. The last time I was uh, in high altitude Colorado, I was, you know, giddy and feverish for 18 hours and then... It does catch it does catch you in a way that, like, being from the coast, you're just not used to it. So I, I have not been to Denver, but I, I have been to a city at a truly insane altitude, which is uh, 
Cusco, Peru, which is, uh, Google informs me, 2.112 miles. And let me tell Whoa. you, if you do not take your altitude sickness medication, that will screw you up. It is not messing around. One of my first dates with my wife, we went out, uh, we came here, and the day we got here, we drove out to Boulder and up into the mountains, uh, which are not like the highest mountains around uh, Denver, but like they get up there into the flat irons and then went for a hike uh, up towards, you know, in some of the ski rounds during the summer. And I was like gasping for air <laughs> and like had a splitting headache the whole time. And I was like, I look so weak in front of my girlfriend. This is a terrible plan. Uh, but she understood. I think that was her strategy for kind of, you know, asserting a little dominance in, a re- in early in our relationship. <laughs> that has been a kind of continued theme throughout. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be here in our post-Christmas holiday, Boxing Day, virtual studio with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And in the absence of our third regular co-host, who remains on extended leave, not dead, Alan Rosenstein, uh, <laughs> we are thrilled to have future Alan Rosenstein. He is actually dead. We've just, we're going to weekend at Bernie's him when he comes back. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We've been doing it for weeks at this point, honestly. Um, the hair really worked with the sunglasses. It has a kind of weekend at Bernie's vibe, even. Uh, none other than Rational Security co-host Emeritus and Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes. Ben, thank you, as always, for coming back on the podcast, your native podcast. It is, yeah. We're yes, glad to host you again. It's my, 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 the podcast of my birth. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's how we like to think of it here, Rational Security, even if though we refuse to acknowledge your reign uh, as again, as we've covered previously on the podcast, you never existed and there never was an original Rational Security as far as we are concerned. But this is, in fact, your first version of this particular podcast because we are having a very special episode. No, we're not talking about drugs and teenage sex on this very special episode of Rational Security. Uh, Instead, we are talking uh, about the year behind us and what our listeners want us to talk about at the end of this year. Because for the holiday week between Christmas and New Year's every year, at least the last two years, we have recorded a listener-submitted episode where we talk about the topics you've asked us to talk about, listeners, talk about some of the object lessons you've submitted. we got a very ripe list of both this year. We're not going to have time to get to all of them. Apologies for those we don't get to. Apologies for those who submitted multiple ones because I felt like I could only choose one in an effort to get in as many people's uh, topics and object lessons as I could for this particular episode. But we are excited to talk through some of the topics you want us to talk about and what we are calling our unboxing day edition being recorded none other than the day is december 26 just a few days before the end of the year and this will be the last time you hear from us until 2024 so savor these last thoughts and object lessons until well next week at our regular recording time so not that different for you but it feels different it's a different year it's crazy all right should we get started quinta i think you are up with our first listener submitted topic So our first question is submitted by Anthony, an Australian in London, which is an excellent epithet. And the question reads, I would love to hear your thoughts on the AUKUS deal and what the implications are for U.S. foreign policy. I'd be particularly interested in its implications for the Five Eyes relationship, if you think it will have any, and what impact, if any, would a second Trump presidency have? So Scott, this has your name written all over it. AUKUS, thoughts? AUKUS. AUKUS, one of our very first topics in Rational Security 2.0, as I recall, in some of our very first episodes. I love I just AUKUS want to point topic. out that you just acknowledged that this was 2.0. You did it inadvertently. Strike it from the record. <laughs> against your will. But you cannot Admission escape. Admission against interest. You cannot Strike this escape reference from the, record. the 2.0 tag. 
Touche, touche, touche. Well, whenever, whenever we may have started this, when Rational Security first started, <laughs> this was one of our first <laughs> topics uh, back in 2021, uh, I think it was at this point. I also love this topic because anytime you hear an Australian say AUKUS, it to me sounds exactly as if they're saying Orcus, the Roman god of dead slash creepy Dungeons and Dragons villain. <laughs> and I cannot disentangle the two in my brain. <laughs> so I always get a thrill when I hear Australians talking about AUKUS in particular. So thank you, Anthony. In my head right now, I'm hearing you say it and I love it in the Australian accent. This is a really good question. Like people don't don't realize, and I don't think we I fully realized actually the last time we talked about it, the uh, extent to which the AUKUS deal is actually like a step towards like a subset of the Five Eyes relationship in a particular direction. We really thought about AUKUS and the big deal initially when it came out, I think was the focus of our first conversation about it as a nuclear sub deal, um, because it was, you know, they can't, the Australians canceled a deal with the French, went into this deal with the Americans and the Brits um, over, over nuclear submarines, which was kind of like a taboo. Australians were kind of hung up on not using nuclear technology in various regards. They kind of got over it. And it's super, super sensitive technology that really the Brits and the Americans only share with each other, if even fully there. The Australians are getting into the club, but actually goes a lot further than that. They also lay a lot of expectations about coordinating on quantum computing, artificial intelligence, a lot of really cutting edge technology that particularly China, which this whole effort is kind of intended to help balance, is focusing on developing as well. So there's all this sort of sharing and it's built on this trust relationship that itself is embedded in the five eyes. Like the five eyes is a post-World War II relationship centered on signals intelligence that includes Canada, New Zealand, Australia, UK, United States, as countries that have always had a very ripe, robust sharing relationship around signals intelligence. But it has evolved into a kind of like really interesting cultural alignment around intelligence and national security issues, this idea that like we, because we have this longstanding relationship, have learned to trust each other this much more. And so we're more comfortable sharing this high level of technology. So I definitely think it has implications for Five Eyes. You know, I suspect the Canadians and the New Zealand, insofar as they want to participate in AUKUS, will be some of the first people, the easiest people to bring into the alliance, whereas, you know, France may be a little more difficult, India much more difficult, uh, at least on these technology sharing elements, because they just don't have those sorts of close security relationships. So at the same time, it's, you know, this will probably be the hub of a much broader deal because you need to bring those other parties in to a broader China balancing arrangement generally, but it probably won't be the same as like the super sensitive technology sharing sort of arrangement that may be limited to five eyes, or maybe they find ways to bring the French and a few other allied states that aren't, don't have the same familiarity with, but nonetheless have close relationships into the relationship. Question about Trump is a good one. I don't see the Trump relationship really making that big a difference unless really like things go off the rails in a second Trump presidency um, for the simple reason that there's bipartisan kind of agreement on the general approach towards China. Um, and I don't think that's going to change under former President Trump, if anything, frankly, like the Biden administration has continued a lot of policies set in place by, under the Trump administration because they were kind of the consensus among professional bureaucrats. So I don't think that's going to upset anything. Unless things really go off the rails, which is possible, but that's my sense. Ben Quinta, do you guys have a different take on this, different thoughts? Well, I agreed with everything you said until the not uh, thinking the Trump uh, re-election would have a significant uh, bearing on this, and I actually do disagree with that. Look, AUKUS is not NATO, but the entire set of signals that Trump has sent since uh, really since he left office, but also particularly since the beginning of the Ukraine war, is that he does not believe in the central obligations and commitments of the United States in the world security environment. And 
the same instincts that will cause him to be very destabilizing to confidence in NATO will cause him to be very destabilizing to confidence in other security arrangements. And you could say the Five Eyes is the most resistant to that. Not sure that's true, but in any event, new security arrangements like AUKUS, uh, in which basically we're telling the Australians rely on us for things that you might otherwise rely on, say, France for, uh, why would Australia do that? And I don't think there's a good answer to that other than linguistic and military power. I, I do think there's a little bit of an all bets are off if Trump were to become president again, quality to AUKUS. Uh, I also think, uh, to amplify one of your other points, you know, Five Eyes in the current environment is a kind of it's not just it's not just a nato thing because it's worldwide not just you know north atlantic but it's um it's a kind of a nucleus of frankly english speaking intelligence sharing and military intimacy uh that has a lot of potential in the pacific to uh bring in uh, you know, Australia has an enormous land mass. It has a quite advanced economy. And this is a very, very substantial set of developments that goes well beyond submarines. That said, I do think it depends on the U.S. being and continuing to be a reliable partner. And, and you know, as such, things like the you know, inability to pass the foreign uh, military national security supplemental, and at the extreme, things like the uh, second Trump administration actually make it quite difficult. I will say before we move on to the next topic, listeners, there's a great book to be written about this evolution of Five Eyes and, and the weird way that five English-speaking former Commonwealth countries all decided we're cool sharing signals intelligence and now all trust each other in a way that they don't trust any other country. It's a super weird historical development. It's not strictly legal. It's fascinating. Somebody should write a book about it. I haven't to found a good the one. Point, to the point that after 9-11, the head of the National Security Agency calls the head of GCHQ and says, if anything happens to Fort Meade, you are in charge of U.S. signals intelligence. That's how close the relationship between the U.S. and and the British are. You know, didn't call the head of the CIA, didn't call the head of of uh, you know the Pentagon for which he works. He calls the head of British signals intelligence. Amazing, amazing. Well, for our second question, this is from David Scher. Uh, thank you, David. I hear repeatedly that the only options to enforce the Trump gag orders are fines or jail, but a $15,000 fine does not nothing to dissuade someone as rich as Trump, and no judge is actually going to put a major party presidential candidate in jail shortly before an election. What's the maximum fine for violating the gag order? Could the judge fine a million dollars or more per tweet? 
Quinta, what do you think about this conundrum? We've talked about this a little bit. I think I can't remember on the podcast or off the podcast, but how do you think courts are wrestling with this? What could courts do that maybe they're not doing yet to wrestle with this conundrum? I want to preface this by saying that I'm less familiar with the workings of the New York court system, which of course is one of the the main gag orders that we have at issue here. Um, But courts have a really broad power to enforce discipline uh, within the courtroom, and that gives judges a pretty extraordinary degree of discretion. This is pretty well established in federal law. In New York law, if you look at uh, Justice Engoron's order, he cites to a particular uh, New York statute for civil contempt, which I have looked over and it doesn't seem to set any cap. Uh, There is a cap for a financial cap for criminal contempt, but there isn't one for civil contempt. So on my reading, there is nothing that would prevent either Justice Engoron or potentially uh, Judge Chutkin, if the gag order is is reinstated and Trump continues to violate it, from slapping a really significant fine on him. You know, you can come up with all kinds of fun ways to make it increase. You know, it doubles every time or something like that, and pretty soon you you're talking real money. In terms of you know locking him up, as they say, I mean, look, there's again, there's there's not that much that actually would prevent a judge from doing that as a matter of law. I think this is more a matter of the judges and justices in Engeron's case kind of feeling out the edges of what they feel is uh, strategically wise and permissible, perhaps because they worry that higher courts are going to slap them down if they go all out. But I do think that, you know, we've we've seen so many instances over the course of the Trump presidency and post-presidency where Trump will try something and there's sort of this outcry of, you know, well, why, do, why doesn't somebody stop him? And the answer is often there's not a, you know, there's not really a system in place for stopping this kind of behavior. There actually is in this instance, like this, this authority is very well established. It's just a question of judges maybe being a bit gun shy and using it because they don't know how appeals courts are going to respond. Ben, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I, first of all, I, I dispute the premise of the question that no judge under any circumstance would lock him up. I think yeah, we have not we have not yet seen a, a a circumstance in which there is a flamboyant direct and unapologetic violation of a court order or serial violations of a particular judge's court order and if and when that happens you know, it'll test what the judges in question are made of. But there are also other remedies available to the judges between small fines and locking him up, uh, one of which Quinta mentioned, which was big fines, you know, and fines escalating in particular uh, fashions can, as, as Quinta says, amount to real money really quickly. You know, and you don't only have to use the, you know, the grain of rice on a on a chessboard geometric growth. There are other, you know, you can, you can use other uh, exponents as well. But there are others as well. One of them, uh, Judge Chutkin herself mentioned, which was, you know, fuck with me and I'll speed up the trial date. And you know, that's a real threat if you're Donald Trump. Now, currently, Judge Chutkin doesn't have jurisdiction over her own case. Uh, so that's not in force right now. 
but I, I think she has been pretty unflappable on this. And there are other ones as well. For example, uh, and I haven't thought about the application of this in the in the criminal context, but look, in the civil context, in the Rudy Giuliani case, uh, he ended up defaulting the case by failing to comply with court-ordered discovery rules. And, you know, that ended up costing him so far $149 million, which is, you know, that's not small change. And so the the question of what sanctions uh, she could put on him, uh, and she is really the relevant actor here because realistically, uh, Trump is not going to defy any orders by Judge Cannon, who isn't putting any on him anyway. And uh, Judge McAfee hasn't doesn't have any gag orders. Trump isn't really attacking any of the witnesses in that case just yet. So really, we're talking about D.C. You know, I think she can be uh, reasonably creative here. So I, I just want to say I'm not at all confident that the premise of the question is right. Also, this is going to be before uh, for the next few weeks anyway, before the D.C. Circuit, you know, which has its own ability to discipline uh, litigants. So I, I I would say do not despair of the remedial powers of of the U.S. federal courts. Scott, you've you've you're the one of us who's actually worked for a federal court. Uh, what do you think? Well, I work for a federal appellate court where you don't deal with a lot of sanctions or contempt uh, issues. So I actually Scott, am not 100% Scott was sure. worked in a fake court, as we call them. Yeah, yeah something something like that, perhaps. Uh, you know, but the only thing I would add is I think everything you guys have said is true. The one thing I will say is is one at the state level, you've got added constraints because you have to worry about appeals not just by state standards, but under federal law standards, right? Like this is all the arguments contesting like pretty dramatic impositions of sanctions are going to be federal constitutional questions, interference with electoral rights or first amendment rights. So like the double path of potential appeals, I think probably would make state judges nervous, assuming judges don't like being overturned and like federal proceedings have the possibility to really muck around with whatever you're proceeding you're doing. But even at the federal level, you know, the one thing you'll see here, I think is if anybody's ever going to impose these really dramatic ones, it's going to be, you know, boiling a toad, boiling a frog, like you're going to turn the heat up slowly so you can build a record that they clearly are not complying with lesser sanctions and show that this is necessary. Because if you just go off the bat and you say, here's a million dollar penalty, then I think a higher court might say like, this is pretty extraordinary, weird, unprecedented action. It's not clear this is necessary. You are unduly impinging upon the uh, First Amendment rights and election rights related, related rights of third parties and of the person being sanctioned. But if you show that they don't comply with lesser penalties, then the underlying interest is much easier to show. So they're going to build a record to that effect. And it may never get there because we haven't seen that sort of flagrant violation quite yet. We see a lot of pushing the envelope, but not like clearly violating it yet, I don't think. With a few minor small exceptions, but nothing like major. Well, can can I add one more thing, which is I think part of that is is that I think there's a little bit of a, a sort of feedback loop where judges carve out exceptions because they don't want to be reversed and to help themselves honestly look a little noble. So for example, Judge Chutkin's gag order doesn't apply to her. Justice Engeron's gag order doesn't apply to him. And so there are sort of permissible avenues for Trump to attack. And what he has done is 
narrow his attacks to sort of shunt them through those exit routes, um, which I frankly worries me and what I find a little bit dangerous in terms of what it means for the security of the judges. Uh, Judge Chutkin has quite serious security right now, but I don't know how much the New York court system has in, in the way of security for the judges there. But I mean, Trump is Trump is very canny in sort of walking right up to the edge of the line. So I think what I would look for, if there were going to be a sort of escalating sanction situation, I think what, what would happen is, you know, he has a bad night and uh, truth something rude and then, you know, and refuses to walk it back basically. And then it becomes a big thing. But he he can be shrewd when he wants to be. I think it's just a question of how much self-control he has. All right. The next question comes from Jeff Auerbach. And a big shout out to uh, Jeff's dad, Larry Auerbach. Jeff writes, entering the world of fantasy and hypotheticals, if Trump were convicted and Nikki Haley became the nominee and very likely next president, would this signal a return to normalcy? Or would it be the beginning of a deeper fight over the Republican Party's views on the U.S.'s role in the world? In other words, is the Republican Party now isolationist or simply lost? Well, can I can I just first say that, uh, Scott, we're not fooled. We know this was submitted by you, Nikki Haley's <laughs> number one fan and, and booster. Biggest booster, obviously. <laughs> Team Nikki. Exactly. Nikki, you're exactly. so fine. You're so I fine. Mean, you let me, can I, since since I've I've started by mocking Scott, let me give my take, and then I'll hand it over to to Scott to redeem himself. Um, I mean, I so th- this is the thing about Haley, right? It's like I think that figures like Haley, sort of like not Trump figures in the Republican Party, are appealing to Republican donors because they're not Trump, and because in in a variety of ways they are trying to sort of signal allegiance with the pre-Trump Republican conservative project. And in Haley's case, I think that mostly takes the form of advocating a more kind of interventionist America. I don't know if I would go quite so far as to call it neoconservative, but that's clearly, she, she wants a kind of a muscular present foreign policy as opposed to sort of Trumpian isolationism. The thing is that I don't know who that, like, who is the constituency for that, right? I don't know in in the Republican base. Um, I'm not really sure who wants that other than sort of wealthy Republicans who tend to vote on the basis of, you know, taxes and economic considerations who were put off by Trump. And so, well, I do take the point that if you can kind of imagine a situation where Haley is somehow kind of skips the part of the primary where she's going to run into a brick wall of mega sentiment and somehow is becomes a Republican general presidential candidate that she might indeed be very well positioned, that I think that is a reasonable point. It's hard for me to see what happens like after that, right? What do the midterms look like? What does the next presidential election look like? I don't, it's hard for me to imagine that the groundswell of isolationist and frankly nativist sentiment that Trump has curated among the Republican base and that I imagine he and his acolytes would continue to curate is going to go away. And that means that our hypothetical President Haley is going to run into real problems in a Republican controlled Congress. 
and even in a primary in, in 2028. And so I do think that there's a, a little bit of kind of magical thinking in some ways, sorry, Scott, from Haley Boosters, who are kind of imagining that you can sort of top, make this a top-down situation. You know, if you get rid of Trump and put someone else in his place who is doing things a little bit differently, that you can just kind of squash this sentiment. But that sentiment is really, you know, that has permeated the soil at this point in the Republican primary electorate. That is not going away. Um, and so, well, I could imagine that having a figure like Haley at the leadership of the party might give Republican, quote unquote, moderates or anti-Trump, the anti-Trump wing, however you want to define that, more of a toehold in a war that they've so hard, far been losing pretty catastrophically. It's hard for me to see that that resolves the war rather than just dragging it out further. Scott, tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah. So, you know, I have just a, a, a fundamentally somewhat more... I think actually more cynical view maybe of of a Republican Party, but I actually think it probably extends to both political parties. I think it's kind of in the nature of political parties, which is that foreign policy views rarely are what's driving people to vote for candidates. They tend to to be the tail that follows the body of whatever the political candidate is. So there is this sentiment of like uh, isolationism. If you want to brand it kind of negatively, you can say it's kind of restraint. If you want to brand it positively, that is very much real in the Republican Party, particularly in the House. That former President Trump taps into to some extent, although it's worth noting, like it kind of stands independent of him. A lot of these people, Republicans in Congress who share these views, actively voted for things like Yemen resolutions and Iran resolutions that were strongly critical of former President Trump's actions in cases where he was not particularly restrained, right? Like the Soleimani killing or supporting the Saudi conflict in Yemen or Saudi intervention in Yemen. So, you know, you, you it's actually, it stands pretty independent of Trump. Um, it, it, and it's in the Democratic Party, too. Like, we see a similar debate. There, there's a genuine kind of, like, debate over the proper trajectory of U.S. policy and U.S. engagement in the world that's not strictly partisan, but it's being filtered through different partisan entities because we we're a two-party system, right? And so, you know, if Nikki Haley is elected, you know, I think, frankly, what ends up happening is the vast majority of Republicans who don't really feel that strongly about foreign policy one way or the other are going to feel a lot of pressure to back their candidate. Um, and insofar as she is actually elected president, you're going to see a lot less resistance from like kind of the main bulk of the party around all these foreign policy issues, because I don't think people are actually the vast majority of Republican legislators are really that committed to them. I, I kind of doubt that many Republican voters are either. The nativism element is kind of different, but that's much more about immigration policy, not about like broader foreign policy element. So uh, and, and Nikki Haley, I think, like, probably is not going to go back to like a George W. Bush type, type neoconservatism, right? Like, I think that actually is legit dead because it's so tied up in Afghanistan and Iraq and what's seen as like decades of failed policy at this point that the Republican Party is desperately trying to distance itself from. But nonetheless, like, I, I think she's just a much more conventional foreign policy candidate. I think a lot of her foreign policy continues to look like a lot of the Biden administration's foreign policy because it's a kind of conventional national interests like strategic engagement with the world while cabining some of the perhaps overreach of the post 9-11 era and in, in certain corners of the world by some by some people's measures anyway. So, you know, what that means for the Republican Party, I'll say, is like I, I, I think really the a huge reason you see a lot of people willing in the Republican Party backing the kind of Trump administration views on on foreign policy a little more, you know, unwilling to vote for Ukraine assistance, things like that, is because that's what their party leaders are saying. Um, you have a very vocal minority that has kind of disproportionate power, and it's conveniently opposed to President Biden currently. If you had the same Republican president 
advocating for these policies, I think a lot of these people would vote for them quite handily uh, and not be too concerned about it. And look, I mean, look at the Senate, like Republicans in the Senate overwhelmingly actually support President Biden's policies on most of the stuff. Yeah, they want to negotiate about immigration, but it's not that different. And I think those people are still getting reelected over and over again by Republican voters as well. I think it's an indicator that like foreign policy isn't isn't the driver here. Uh, and, and I think you'll see the foreign policy positions of the Republican Party track more whoever becomes the presidential candidate, mostly on other grounds. That's not right to you, Ben. I don't know. Do you fall between Quint and I on this stuff? Uh, no, I actually agree fully with both of you. I just think you're speaking to different you're speaking to different axes. So Scott is describing what the political scientists would call the behavior of the median voter in each house of Congress, uh, the, the the median member. Quinta is describing something else, which is what works in a Republican primary. What What's the message that the Republican voter is most likely to be responsive to? And Scott, I think you are correct to say that's not ultimately what they're voting on. I I agree with that. But there's a kind of mood to it that is, you know, there's a reason why this year's darling in the in the Republican primary is a creepy thug like Vivek Ramaswamy, not, you know, a Newt Gingrich, right, who had a moment, a Ramaswamy-like moment a few years ago. And, you know, I think the 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 mood in the party, as our questioner suggests is decidedly isolationist. And that is a different animal from what it was 15 years ago. I I also think it is the case, as Scott points out, that, you know, uh, that does not necessarily control the behavior of the median member of particularly the Senate. And in the case of the House, may control the initial instinct, but then you can buy it off with all kinds of other uh, goodies or from other people's point of view, baddies. Um, and so, but but I completely agree with Quinta that if you say to the next person who's going to run a national political campaign, hey, uh, would it be better for your campaign to be a Trumpy-like isolationist who talks about America first or a, you know, an internationalist globalist cuck like Nikki Haley. Can a woman be a cuck? Um, That's a profound question. (laughs) It is a profound question. I mean, honestly, and she has, she has only Nikki can tell us the answer. (laughs) She has the additional disadvantage that she's not white and her parents are immigrants. Right. And, you know, which are you better off being as a walking in matter? And the the answer to that question, I think, is pretty obvious. So, you know, let me say I completely agree with both of you. Next question is from Graham with a question that I frankly do not fully comprehend. Which do you prefer, wizards or fighters? I suspect most people are going to reflexively answer wizards. To complicate matters, I would submit the argument that a lot more kids who just got done reading Lord of the Rings prefer the idea of being Aragorn to the idea of being Gandalf. Similarly, I doubt many people come away from reading King Arthur stories fixated on Merlin rather than someone like Sir Lancelot. Does a fighter mean like a knight, like a guy with a sword? What what is yeah, this? Is the D and D thing? I'm someone. I think confused. fighter means means somebody who wields a sword rather than a wand or a staff. 
Exactly. Mm, okay. Fighters and wizards are, are like Dungeons and Dragons like classes, but I think he's okay. talking more about the literary genre, like a, a warrior versus. This is kind of goes back to our werewolf v vampire debate from last year's episode, where <laughs> talking about bruisers versus sexy wizards. And Alan thought he was a sexy wizard, as I recall, was <laughs> the basic takeaway point. It was persuaded to that fact. I mean, I think uh, so. I think that's what he's getting here. Here's what I'll say for my take on this is that. I think in a literary mode, people are really drawn to the fighters as we describe it, meaning like the normal guy with a sword, but like extraordinary characteristics. Because when you're building, you know, a hero's development, like a hero's journey, it is about opposition and overcoming challenges. And so if you're like just a magic guy who can do make anything happen through mystic powers, like then you're you are kind of inherently not facing the sorts of challenges that are really like compelling and what interesting. What stories about wizards are you reading? There are all kinds well, of buildings or mons that involve wizards. For example, Harry Potter. No, totally. But like they, they always come in like where they have – this is what I was going to get to is like when you have compelling wizards, it's because they live in a world where they have like serious constraints on their power or constraints on their on their limitations, right? So like Gandalf and Merlin are two examples where they're like extraordinary powers. Like Gandalf is supposedly like basically akin to a god and Tolkien-esque sort of myth. And they're the, they're just the, like these Dusak Machina machines where the authors bring them in to like solve a problem in a kind of miraculous way. And then they have to trot off and he like gets stuck in Mordor or something like that or Merlin just disappears for a few weeks. Uh, and then everybody's left to struggle without this wizard who then comes back into their life. So they're almost bad examples in a way where you do see wizards become main characters is because they become more akin to the warriors or the fighters and that they're like hard scrabble facing real challenges, real constraints. Uh, and that's what makes them challenging and interesting. So, that, so that's why I think, I think people tend to prefer fighters. Like I think I prefer fighters, but that sometimes can mean wizards in a more fightery mode. It, it's just about like how it's like Superman versus Batman, right? Like Batman's cooler because <laughs> he's just a guy. And Superman's only interesting when he encounters kryptonite. If he doesn't have kryptonite, he's not interesting. Who cares? He can so, do anything. Like you're never going to hurt Superman. I was going to say that I my because my vampires versus werewolves analysis was a class based analysis that the uh, vampires recall. are the aristocracy and werewolves are the the monster of the people. And I was going to say that doesn't port onto this, but I think you've just added that the fight fighters fighter is just a weird word for this. That that is the, the blue collar uh, <laughs> option. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's. I think it's kind of right. You're know, facing some challenges, some hard, hard, hard issues to deal with. Uh, yeah, I think it's a little blue collar action. I think that's right. Sign me up for the Norns. The Norns. <laughs> You've referenced Norns so frequently recently; <laughs> it has come up a lot. I feel like I have uh, in law for conversations. This is like the third or fourth time in the last few weeks. I had to Google it to remind myself what they are. What? Yeah. What is this? Like Scandinavian oracles, basically. They, Solid. They, All right. they weave the future in on their looms, and uh, you fuck with them at your peril. Nibbling, nibbling sweet ball, sweet Swedish meatballs, and on very nice angular furniture. Very yeah, they're, kind, they're kind of like if the fates, the Greek fates, met the the witches of Macbeth. They in an get Ikea. the Norns. Yeah, in IKEA. <laughs> well, I wouldn't mess with that. And Odin's afraid of them. There you go. Classic wizard v. fighter. Right there. Right there. We all want to be Odin. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, next question comes from David. Realistically, is there anything to stop Donald Trump from appointing a loyalty first cabinet if he gets reelected? I want to believe that Senate confirmation can still keep him from installing toadies, but we saw last time how comfortable he was with keeping unconfirmed acting officials in key role throughout the administration. What's to keep him from leading all the way into that approach next time? Ben, this has your name written all over it. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think there's actually realistically nothing. Uh, so first of all, realistically, there is no scenario in which Trump gets elected and in which the Democrats have a majority of the Senate. So you have to imagine that a Trump election coincides with uh, renewed Republican control over the Senate, which is probably going to happen anyway. And in that environment, it's hard to imagine that a loyalty first cabinet is not confirmable. But secondly, even if it isn't confirmable, there is the ability to have acting officials do 97% of what you want uh, is all but plenary. And so I don't think the advice and consent function is likely to provide much of a bulwark here. I think what will provide a bulwark and what did last time is the um, Administrative Procedures Act and the, you know, in the extreme case, the criminal law, um, which is, you know, you can come into office saying you're going to indict all your opponents, but then they get to file motions to dismiss. You have to you know, engage in criminal procedure and judges get to throw stuff out. And that is actually disciplining, both because, you know, those make cases go away, but also because lawyers don't usually like to file cases that they know they're going to lose. Uh, and on the, the, the administrative law side, you know, the people don't remember this, but the Trump administration had a very dreadful record of uh, administrative law losses on all kinds of agency actions. And the courts really did rein in a lot of the, you know, not everything, the a version of the travel ban did go into effect. It was a pale uh, shadow of the version Trump originally proposed. So I, I, I think realistically, it's not going to be cabinet appointments that restrain it. It's going to be litigation of one sort or another, and the fear of litigation, which is what happened last time. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Scott, whether you uh, think this is optimistic or pessimistic or about right. 
No, I totally agree. I mean, the the one pushback you'll another pushback, I should say, I think you identified the right ones. And this is kind of a variation on the litigation one is just that, particularly when you're talking about the attorney general, as we saw with the Matthew Whitaker experiment, or certain other enforcement agencies, like when you have an agency that engages in enforcement activity, and you have somebody who is at least colorably like appointed in a manner not consistent with law, there's tons of people who can legally challenge that and it can invalidate a lot of government action. So there's one vehicle of vulnerability and a reason why it's harder to do that. Like there is a reason the Trump administration ultimately felt like they had to find a bill bar to appoint and not just stick with Matthew Whitaker. But notably, it, you, you have an advantage in, in the case of a, of a Trump administration in that if you're if you're kind of skeptical of a lot of regulatory action as uh, the Trump administration is, like that might not be as big an issue in a variety of financial regulatory and environmental regulatory contexts, right? Because you're not really worried about doing that as effectively. Uh, so yeah, so but other than that, I think that that's right. Uh, it's just how it plays out. Attorney General is probably the hardest one to get away with, I would guess, because of it's so involved in enforcement action. But I suspect others would face a similar sort of conundrum. But I'm not sure it's insurmountable in a lot of cases. Also, there are things that an acting attorney general can't do, like sign FISA requests. And so you do at some point need Senate confirmed leadership in the Justice Department. Quinto, you had something to add? Yeah, just one point here. I mean, I think that this is a good moment to note opportunities lost uh, because one of the big issues that folks like a friend of lawfare, Steve Vladek, were flagging as something that really needed reform post-Trump was the workings of the Federal Vacancy Reform Act, which is the loophole-riddled statute that allowed Trump to get away with a lot of these vacancy appointments that really stretch the boundaries of what's legally permissible. There were proposals on the table to address this, including by um, our colleagues uh, Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer in their book After Trump. Congress did not move forward with any of them. And here we are. That's 100% correct. Uh, That's a bummer as that is. All right. So this question comes from Keenan, who has the distinction of being the only person uh, who sent in a question whose wife uh, mentioned uh, rational security in her wedding vows. So we're going to take this uh, question especially seriously. And Quinta, it is for you. How is misinformation from both Hamas and Israel playing a role in the American public's perception of the war in Gaza? It's a great question and uh, unsurprisingly a complicated one for a few reasons. One is I would say that we're actually going into this conflict with a lot less visibility, um, at least when we're talking about misinformation online than we did in previous conflicts, uh, because Twitter, where a lot of information circulates for the first time, has really uh, just raised its trust and safety uh, team to the ground and salted the earth. And a lot of platforms, Twitter among them, have really uh, scaled back on the visibility that researchers have into those platforms. TikTok also just is really not something that has a lot of researcher visibility. So it's just kind of harder to track what is going on. There's certainly a lot that you can see about, you know, falsehoods spreading around. I don't want to do hashtag both sides, but you do see misinformation uh, and including, you know, information that people genuinely believe to be true, but is in fact false circulating uh, in terms of propaganda from folks of many different political positions on the conflict. I think there's a temptation to sort of point to the fact that platforms have scaled back a lot of trust and safety capabilities, the fact that so much of this conflict is being 
litigated um, and debated online as, you know, new and confusing in, in some way. And certainly, you know, as is often the case, right, there is an extent to which the ability to transmit information quickly and spread it without context adds to all kinds of confusion and intentional misrepresentation. I do think, though, you know, it's important to keep in mind, like, a lot of these confusions and misrepresentations are things that have permeated all conflicts, but also this particular conflict, which is one of sort of unique, uniquely high emotional tenor and political complexity uh, from the beginning. And so in that sense, I would sort of say that I think it's a and I don't think that the questioner is doing this, but this is sort of more of a general comment. I think it's important to distinguish between the aspects in which this is being sort of distorted or perceived in a particular way because of the way that information travels now versus to what extent this is simply a reflection of how hard it is to parse what is going on in a situation that is fast moving, genuinely quite confusing where there's in some cases, such as in Gaza, limited information coming out and where people have really, really strong opinions on all sides. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I just want to, I'll add two points here. You know, I think one part that's not new or unique to this conflict, but is particularly notable is that both, both parties, and it's, that's a little unfair because I think when I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the Israeli government and then Palestinians are both like Hamas, but then also other people who are sympathetic with the Palestinian cause, but often might not be sympathetic with Hamas. You have people who are very consciously, sometimes in good faith, sometimes in bad faith, amplifying and addressing and framing developments in a certain way that might be misinformation if they're inaccurate, or at least don't always reflect a complete picture uh, or might be exaggerating certain things. Um, again, sometimes I think this happens by accident. Sometimes it is very deliberate. Like the Israeli government is very conscious of the narrative that's forming around actions like this and pushing back on it officially, unofficially in various ways. Supporters of Israel do the same thing. Hamas supporters of the Palestinian cause do the same thing in other regards, a little less centralized in various ways because of there's not a you know state government in the same way. So like you have that factor. That's not entirely new, uh, but I think they're all particularly sophisticated at it and particularly widespread. And it's particularly because of the level of engagement and this era where we're like in a much more advanced social media environment than other conflicts, like it's kind of this is the peak of that. The other factor that we haven't heard much about, but I am 100% sure is happening at a very real scale. And I am waiting for the reports to document and find it is that I am confident that frankly, major power competitors of the United States uh, and Europe are actively amplifying a lot of the heat around this issue using- Oh, Iran, this, this Iran absolutely is. Absolutely. Iran absolutely yeah. is. But Iran's like not the most sophisticated at this stuff. Like I have no doubt Russia and China is. Like look at Russia and China's public posture on this conflict. Russia in particular is really notable. Like Russia is basically like actually kind of 180 its whole position on the whole Israel-Palestine issue, not entirely historically, but the last like 10 or 15 years, you saw a real- close relationship between Netanyahu and Putin, um, developing in part because there's strong cultural ties, because there are a lot of Russian-Israeli dual citizenships or people with family ties um, to both. And like Putin has very consciously come out very strongly pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli, in part to draw a contrast with the United States and capitalize on this because of the ramifications for Ukraine and broader kind of major power competition. And remember, you know, a big part of leading in 2016 was these states using misinformation to amplify things like racial tensions in the United States, right? Like very real things that people have genuine and fair different differences of opinion on, but their goal was to amplify the volume, make them angrier, make them more hateful, try and draw distinctions up. And you see so much of that around this conflict. Some of it's very real, like there are genuine differences of opinion here that are real. And we shouldn't 
pretend like they're somehow being fabricated. At the same time, I think the heat is something that really plays into the hand of those parties, and I have no doubt that they're um, actively amplifying them. I don't know if that's a different making the difference or not. If that's the only reason it's happening, I highly doubt it. But I, you know, it's just too convenient an opportunity for them in this particular moment, and I, I'm confident certainly Russia um, and probably China as well is, is playing up on that. I'm just waiting, like I said, for the study to finally find the evidence that we need to to make the case that that's actually happening. Um, but maybe that's harder to do now in a kind of post Twitter ecosystem. Yeah, I just want to add a quick thing, which is I don't think that misinformation or for that matter, disinformation is the fundamental operative thing here. There's a certain amount of it. It happens. People lie. People get things wrong and amplify it, for example, in the that big hospital strike that people didn't wait around for. But it's not the dominant narrative here. The dominant source of information is truthful information being hyped out of context. And, you know, it's people fighting over completely irrelevant historical questions like who was there first, what is indigeneity in the context of the Middle East. They may be, compl- they may be accurate, or they may not be accurate. Some of these questions go back to literally to prehistory. But the relevant point is not that it's disinformation or misinformation. It's that it's decontextualized yelling about things that are, that may very well be true, but aren't essentially important. Also, you know, if you only yell about the things that are injurious to the side that you favor, you can, without being inaccurate at all, be highly distortive and unhelpful. And I think that's a much bigger factor. So, for example, people on the Palestinian side who, you know, talk about uh, the number of Palestinian deaths with a great deal of rage and with no sense of what the alternative uh, are for the IDF to uh, the kinds of military actions they're pursuing, or to both sides it, people on the pro-Israeli side who talk about 1,200 murders on, on October 7th and no sense of the scale of the devastation in the weeks and months in response to that, they're not engaged in mis- neither of these sides are engaged in misinformation both of these are true they're just without a sense of the relationship to each other completely devoid of of what i would call informational utility it's just yelling and so the, uh, acknowledging that there's a certain amount of misinformation i think the much bigger problem here is the abuse or misuse of truthful information I think a useful frame for understanding this is a concept that um, Kate Starbird, who studies this kind of thing at the University of Washington, calls collective sense-making, that a lot of what we think of as misinformation or disinformation is just a process of people trying to figure out what is going on in a confusing situation, and that's something that can be used for good. You know, you connect with people, you figure out what's going on, that can be helpful, and it's something that can go in really dark and disturbing directions. And I think if you kind of put that framework on it, a lot of what you're describing, Ben, is attempts at collective sense-making of something that is big and ugly and complicated and has a very long history and that therefore can get distorted in all kinds of ways. 
All right. Our next question comes from Kyle. Kyle asks, I'm a reporter. My fiance is headed to law school next year. Exact school still to be determined. Any general advice for her as she prepares for her legal education or for me as the soon-to-be husband of a soon-to-be lawyer? I think I will take this one, actually. I should have given this to someone else to introduce because I am both the only person who went to law school yeah, Scott, on this Scott's the only podcast person who's qualified. And the only person married to a person who went to law school on this podcast. So I'll say, I'll, I'll make a quick piece of advice for both. Uh, on law school, uh, I think the biggest thing is buy horn bucks early and often. They're useful all semester, not just before exams, because not all law school classes are well assembled. The Socratic method is kind of nonsense. So it's useful to have a parallel, which is a, a good summary to kind of guide you through, through the larger picture reasoning uh, that horn books are very good for, particularly for black letter law classes. Two, uh, I, I always say, tell people, new students, uh, don't get too caught up in extracurriculars because uh, law school can be a little all-consuming and doing well, particularly your first semester, actually does matter more than it probably should, but it does matter a lot these days for like clerkships and things like that. So go ahead and focus on your classes initially. Extracurriculars are cool, um, but they're rarely all crack cracked up to be, except for clinics. Clinics are really worth doing, but you kind of do that later in law school anyway, most of the time. Uh, and I think the third piece of advice is not, you know, don't get too caught up in it. Um, try and avoid the the stress. Uh, all your classmates are going to be real A-type, uptight people. They're going to be delightful, but A-type, uptight people. It's easy to get groupthink in that sort of environment. Just fight the groupthink to the extent you can and try and relax and have a happier life. You're going to have a great career and do interesting things. So you will get there. Just focus on doing your best and trying to stay relaxed and happy. Exercise, do things like that. Don't lose track of those things because they're just like part of life. And for the spouse point, I will say uh, if you're doing long distance, uh, as it sounds like you might be if you don't know where uh, your spouse is going yet, it's actually not that bad because uh, you have to spend a lot, your spouse will have to spend a lot of time studying. So it's great to actually drop in um, as hard as long distance can be. Sometimes it's nice to have be able to like, just drop in and just do a weekend together and then pop back out. Well, my wife and I did that for first two years of law school. Uh, we did eventually move together and it is better to be together. But, uh, you know, finding ways to get those little weekends away actually makes a big difference um, because you will be your spouse will be studying a lot of the time. Uh, and so you need to get those few weekends in to facilitate that. I strongly recommend just like finding ways to access things away from the law school. A lot of law schools are all consuming. They have a super intense environment where like your spouse will have lots of single friends who are trying to meet other single people. And so it's good if you can get a social scene that's a little away from that. So like if you're going to a, a college town, like have a car so you can drive around and explore places. I didn't have a car in law school. I really regretted that. So I could have explored areas outside of the town. Um, and otherwise, just be patient. You know, you it's going to be a lot of work for the two of you um, uh, and they're going to be very stressed out about it. So just be as supportive as you can. And, uh, you know, learn to cook and to do all those other little things around the house that are very valuable uh, because uh, they're good lifelong skills, but particularly important when your spouse is studying all the time. Do you guys have anything to add to this? Any vicarious wisdom that you've gathered from dealing with so many lawyers over your careers? I'll just say that was that was so wholesome. I'm a very wholesome man. I just want to add uh, something about the being a journalist side of it. A journalist's and a lawyer's understanding of truth are very different. <laughs> and true the lawyer's understanding of truth involves the construction of the facts that is defensible individually maybe not collectively and that best presents matters on behalf of the client and that is very much not a journalist's understanding of what truth is and i would just say to uh, kyle understand that your spouse is going to learn a very different version of truth than than you have learned and develop a tolerance for that indefensible conception of truth that the lawyer learns. 
I will double down on that wholeheartedly. That's actually great <laughs> advice. I've never heard phrased that well. And also, I will say to the lawyer, to the to, to Kyle's wife, don't buy into the bullshit too much about being a lawyer. <laughs> There's a lot of bullshit wrapped up in it. Don't let yourself be, you know, the gunslinger, sophist lawyer uh, where there is no truth. Don't lose track of the fact that there's a reality out there that uh, needs to be served. That's higher, higher order. Touch grass, as they say. As they say, exactly. From at Lulu and Toes on uh, the evil site that we do not name. Phenomenal name, by the way. I love at Lulu and Toes. That's a wonderful, wonderful tag or wonderful handle, excuse me. And is, by the way, an excellent person as well. Um, Hey, at Rational Security, what is the protocol for kicking a nation out of both the EU and NATO? And what are the pros and cons of potentially kicking out, oh, say, Hungary, to mention a, a not at all selectively chosen example? Scott, this is a very you kind of question. Well, I'll handle the first half. I, I, I want to hear you all, maybe on the second half more, uh, may have more more sense of Hungary and, and, and the relative benefits of it specifically. I will say as a legal mechanism, there is no way to kick a nation out of the EU or NATO for that matter. That's true of most international like alliances. It was just kind of like international practice in the early twenty earlier earlier 20th century, mid post-war era, that like all these alliance systems were setting up. There was never an assumption that a state would be ousted or a mechanism clearly set up to do that. Um, and so there's nothing in the treaty arrangement that actually allow that to happen. What you could do is that you could get every other state to basically agree, hey, we're all going to exit our existing treaty, enter into an identical treaty arrangement just with that one less state, right? So like if you had unanimity with all the other members, you could effectively kick them out. Um, this sounds like are- how you would rearrange a middle school clique. Yeah, you'll go it, it, to another lunch exactly table right. without without hungry. Exactly. Or if you're like in a in a high school club and you really want to get rid of the president, like this is what you do. You form the new photography club or whatever it is to kick them out of out of office. No, notice that it was it was the one of us who was most recently in middle school uh, that, <laughs> that raised thought about this that example. parallel. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tra- deeply, deeply traumatized as we all are. <laughs> Uh, and, and like in this context, that that's like the the only real mechanism to do it. There are ways if there was like a substantial breach, uh, a material breach is like the technical term under international law that like you can suspend obligations between states. So if one of these states was to found be in material breach, maybe everybody else could kind of agree, OK, we're going to suspend certain obligations to them, like maybe their Article 5 obligations towards them or maybe – obligation our obligation to listen to how they vote in nato although i don't know how you would get around that exactly um but it would all be very dicey and tricky you basically would need near unanimity among all the other members to do any of this stuff um even if you might be able to craft an international legal basis for for justifying that sort of outcomes so that's that's the that's the con that's the challenge is that it's a really high bar to do something like this and uh you know it's it's kind of new territory um untrodden territory for for these sorts of organizations Hungary specific. Do either of you guys have a view on Hungary specific and the pros and cons of it being in or out of any of these alliance systems? So I have a couple thoughts about Hungary. Um, the first is that, you know, from a NATO point of view, I don't think Hungary is all that important um, because, you know, NATO is, it doesn't do that much by consensus. You know, it, it, it's essentially U.S.-led. There are a few other major players in it, and countries participate as much as they want to. And, you know, there is a free-riding problem in the sense that if Viktor Orban were attacked, 
he would presumably invoke Article 5, and we would all feel like the fate of NATO depended on the response. But it's more of a freeloading problem than it is a disabling the functionality of the institution. NATO has been very effective the last year and a half, despite Viktor Orban. And what threatens it right now is U.S. dysfunctionality, uh, not Viktor Orban. The EU is a different matter because the EU does actually proceed by consensus. It has, I think, 23 countries and any one of them can stymie stuff. And Viktor Orban does that in a way that has been very disruptive to all kinds of particularly Ukraine-related matters, but some other matters as well. I do am not enough of an expert on the EU to know and how it works, to know how much latitude they have to get around this. I do think as a general matter, you know, I have stopped traveling to non-democratic countries just as a matter of principle, and I don't really want to be in major, you know, egalitarian international organizations with them. So were I a German I would, or a Estonian, I would have a real serious problem with the, with Hungary's presence in the EU. I'm not, I don't have a dog in that fight. I have really come to believe in democratic nationalism and solidarity as I've gotten older. And I cannot feel solidarity with Victor Orban's Hungary, and I would not spend money to support it, and I would not urge, you know, its particular defense. And so if I were a European, I, I look at it the way I look at, say, the United Arab Emirates. It might be useful in certain ways. You might have transactional relationships with it that are mutually beneficial. But I wouldn't want to be in a union with it, to use the parlance of the EU. And that's kind of the way I feel about all of these uh, illiberal countries that may have some democratic forms, but don't, but don't have rule of law cultures and don't. I, I guess if I were a member of the EU, it would bother me a lot that Hungary is still in. And the only thing I would say to myself is that in consolation is, hey, until two months ago, I would have said the same thing about Poland. And now Poland is solidly back in the fold. And so, you know, the question of when you give up on a, on a country's democratic instincts is a very hard one. Next question is from Tim, who asks, in the wake of the mishandling of classified documents along the eastern seaboard, the western seaboard remains safe. I have wondered about a different approach. What if the government moves certain classification of materials to an all-digital means of consumption? But if a document were not allowed to even exist in paper, if classified documents to the president or within the National Security Council could only be viewed via iPad or Kindle or something, then isn't the risk of a printed copy being in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago significantly reduced? Benjamin Wittes, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, 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 alas, I, I kind of know the answer to this question, which is, so this was, in fact, the response to a lot of the Snowden stuff. And the IC created what was essentially a classified cloud 
uh, and they did not allow, you know, plug-in USB devices so you could read the material online, you could not remove it. And the problem with that is that it doesn't apply to the president and can't be made to apply to the president. If the president wants his briefing material on paper, he's going to get it on paper. If he wants it on sheets of 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 glass etched in, uh, he's going to get it on the sheets of glass. And if he wants it in projected into clouds of mist, he's going to get it that way. That's the essence of being president. And so you can you can ben- you can do a lot of the work associated with the Edward Snowden level people uh, this way. But you can't really control the raging bull elephant if he's the president this way. And there's also limits to how much you can do on, as the Teixeira case shows, somebody's going to bring a phone in and take pictures and that, you know, take pictures and upload it to your Discord server. You can control access to a certain degree but particularly at the secret level and below, this is much more a problem at the secret level and below than it is at the top secret level. But, you know, there are a gazillion terminals that are not in SCIFs that have access that people, you know, you're, you are relying on trust to some degree. And if you do that, there's going to be some level of trust fail and it won't just be on the eastern seaboard. I agree with that. The one thing I would supplement, though, is it is true under the current system, the, nothing, nobody could force to do this, the president to abide by a rule like this. I'm actually not sure that's true if Congress really wanted to mandate it by statute. Our current classification system is not statutory, but there are elements of it that are, like for nuclear secrets and a few other handful of things that are rules that the executive branch treats as if they apply pretty broadly, like can't be waived by the president. Now, I think if you really push them on it, they would say, well, you know, we may have these Article 2 arguments that says Congress can't do this, but like they just don't pick that fight. So if Congress really wanted to mandate something, I think they maybe could, but it would be a complete overhaul of our current classification system. The only other thing I like flagging here, as I, and I think about this more as I've gone from being like a practicing government lawyer to more of an academic-y type or whatever the heck I am now, is that I use like I spent a lot of my government career pouring through like reams of classified hard documents for like historical archive purposes or sorting through things. It was a real pain in the butt. And I was like, why are all these things here? Why are we keeping them like yes, it'd be easier if it's all electronic, I could do like searches. And I kept no hard records myself. I kept everything electronically because I I'm, I'm that generation. But from a historian's angle, like actually like having generations sort and like allocate what they retained in hard copy actually is really invaluable because it creates a much more finite controlled and like contemporaneous historical record about what people were actually looking at um, that we see coming out now as you look through like the historic the uh, u.s foreign relations volumes the, the state department publishes that are like really really valuable and so like we you lose a little bit of that and so that's something that the government has thought a little bit about trying to recreate the state department like has efforts to say like we capture certain people's emails and like encourage people to flag certain things for historical significance, things like that. But I'm not sure we have a good substitute for it in the electronic era. And I look at my home laptop and the sheer volume of material I have here. And I, if I'm ever significant and a historian gets their hands on it, they will be able to do nothing with it because it's just too much crap to sort through. And I fear that's the world we're going into for with our entire government, you know, for historians 50 years from now. But, you know, 
I guess that's their problem at that point. I'll be dead or retired probably. So maybe, hopefully, hopefully neither, but, but possibly, but we'll see. Our next question comes to us from Connor McGuire with China's slowed economic growth and aging population. How does it affect Xi Jinping's policies, specifically ambitions for Taiwan reunification? He continues to push the one China principle, but the previous window of opportunity starts in 2027 uh, and does not go past 2035. I think is the the window where uh, the Chinese government has said this is where we think we are will be at the point where we will be prepared or should be prepared to launch a military campaign to reclaim Taiwan. And it does not go past 2035, as this is when they were predicted to be at their strongest economically and militarily. That's the point where their economy is going to take a deep downturn by some projections. An aging population, declining birth rate, and failing economic policies has to affect this decision calculus, but in what way? Ben, do you have a sense of this? Uh, have you thought about this, the Xi Jinping calculus here? I confess that uh, the future of China is not my forte, but I will give it the following thought. First of all, when you have 1.4 billion people, the trends do not have to be in a good direction for you to have a lot of people to throw at a problem. And if you were willing as an authoritarian to divert very large number of resources from, you know, support for the population, uh, you can generate uh, very large amounts of resources available for pet projects. Just ask the North Koreans, right, who can produce a lot of missiles and a lot of nuclear bombs by just not caring if a lot of people are starving. And so I do not believe that the fact that, you know, the optimization window for military strength will have closed means you couldn't have a very credible uh, military threat against Taiwan. I also think that the likelihood of a military action does not necessarily decline with the closing of that window. It could accelerate it, actually, in the sense that if if she or his successors were to perceive that the window is closing, second, the, the aspiring first-tier power who's really a second-tier power can be an extremely dangerous thing. And so I would, uh, I would you know, take that threat very seriously if I were Taiwanese or somebody who cared about Taiwan, which I actually do. Uh, The final thing is that, look, I don't believe that demographics are destiny, but the demographics of China are a a very ugly picture. uh, And kind of unlike anything we've ever seen before in world history, except on a very small scale like Japan in the in the 90s and early aughts. And the thing about Japan in the early 90s, uh, late 90s and early aughts is that it was rich. And so what it meant for Japan was very slow or stagnant growth and the end to its challenge to the United States as the you know, world's most productive uh, economy. It did not mean you know, the failure to feed hundreds of millions of people. And the the demographics of China, you know, if you play that out, that same effect, which is negative population growth and, you know, stagnant economic growth over a decade or more, or maybe in China's case, longer than that. And China also has this element of, 
you know, just not having enough women as a result of, you know, the one child policy and the accompanying rates of infanticide over time. Uh, that's something the world has never really dealt with before. And, and I do think China has a reckoning coming. And I do think a lot of things in the world, in terms of the peace and security of a lot of places, depends on what happens and how it handles that. I just don't think it's right to to take a sort of demographics is destiny. The de demographics here provides choices that that regime is going to have to address, and how well it addresses them answers a lot of those questions. The the challenge itself does not answer those questions. I'll just say there's a what I thought was a great New Yorker article about this uh, by Evan Osnos uh, this October that's called China's Age of Malays. Um, and one of the really interesting things about it is, well, he does something that I always appreciate, which is go beyond the sort of very high level, you know, China this, China that, and actually look at the experiences of everyday people and interviews them and talks about, you know, what does it mean for like bookshops, right? How can you track sort of cultural stagnation from increasing authoritarian pressure by the government in terms of what like independent bookstores look like? And one of the things that he points to is something that has really created a lot of discontent within the population and created economic problems as well is China's response to COVID. Um, so I am not a China expert. Um, I am not an economist. I know very little about all of this, but I did think that that was a really interesting and thought-provoking exploration of the topic, not only in terms of what it means for potential great power conflict, but also just what it means for the millions and millions of people who live there um, and whose futures are going to be shaped in a profound way by whatever direction the country goes next. Yeah, the only thing I would add to this is that I I've, I am not a China person. Like I tend to be a Middle East person with like a little bit of Easternish Europe or Balkans kind of dashed in. But I've I've done a lot of work on China because I wrote a very long law review article on on China issues uh, earlier this year. Um, so I've kind of been reading up on this. And the thing that really strikes me is that this whole context is really complicated and becomes much of uh, very much a, a sort of Rorschach test in part because China's internal governance is it's such a black box because it is not just Xi Jinping as personal dictator, although it's often framed that way, and maybe that is what it is, but it's actually the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Party that clearly he is a major figure in, but it's not clear whether he's dictating things or whether there are other kind of centers of gravity. Like he's, He clearly seems threatened by certain former Chinese leaders he's worked hard to marginalize, so suggest there are different little gravities of centers of gravity in terms of power there. And we don't know how they think about these challenges, right? Like this was always in my IR student days in college, like the argument about democratic peace theory uh, and the explanation for it that, uh, you know, the, this is the idea that democracies rarely go to war, not that they never go to war. That was kind of one version of it initially. But I think there's a compelling argument, one, one compelling explanation as to why it is relatively rare is that we have to have debates out in the open when you're a democracy, right? Like a lot of your policy discussions and push and pull between different centers of gravity, centers of different powers happens in public in a way that your rivals or potential rivals can see. And so your behavior becomes a little more predictable. And then perhaps the idea is that you have a lot more warning signs as you get closer to a point of crisis, right? So there's less concern about a crisis suddenly arising. China has the exact opposite. And so Part of the reason why you hear such varying perspectives of alarm that we have over China is because we know they have these challenges coming 
around the bend and under, you know, 10 years or less, um, very serious challenges, very kind of like existential challenges and crises for the regime. And we don't have any idea how they are thinking about them and how they fit into their reasoning and how they engage, uh, you know, really even their their elites in them. Um, we know how they kind of frame them to the public, which is a sign of complete strength that cracks. But like, that is such a farce. Uh, it is hard to take it seriously as the COVID crisis kind of really demonstrated. So I, I, I tend to be think that there's a lot of alarmism around China in the United States and other parts of the world. It's not that there aren't serious challenges. I think they're very real, but that the black box nature of their governance leads a lot of people to fear for the worse and read the worse into it. Uh, so I think you have to prepare for the worst, but I think you also have to recognize that like, that's actually not the way we would approach these challenges and it may not be the way they approach these challenges either. And in the specific case of Taiwan, like attacking Taiwan even after 2027 would be a devastating act for China to undertake even if it won. Every projection, every assessment suggests that it would be incredibly difficult military undertaking even if the United States didn't get involved, which there's a good chance it would. And the United States has signaled it, there's a good chance it would. So all that suggests that like if they're facing these challenges, that's a lot of added burden, uh, but for a, a period of major crisis that the government's going to have to wrestle with, maybe they don't want to undertake that, but then they don't want to signal that externally. So they have a reason to kind of act like, no, this is a window where we, we are really might capitalize on our opportunity so that we don't signal weakness. It's a complicated game. And, and I, I think it's, I think we need all need to be, exercise a little bit of modesty about what we know about what China might do about any of this stuff. Next question is from Anonymous, who asks, what has been going on with Wagner in Africa post Prigozhin? Has it changed in any way? So uh, this is not a topic that I can claim I have any special knowledge of other than reading the newspaper, but there's been really, really good coverage of this, particularly from the New York Times. Um, there's an article in November uh, that I reread uh, entitled The Battle for Influence Rages in Heart of Wagner's Operations in Africa, uh, Bailey and Peltier. It looks like with a couple of other uh, colleagues who may have collaborated with them, a lot of on the ground reporting from the Central African Republic. There, at least, they tell a story uh, about Wagner essentially actually being in a its dissolution actually having a big impact on Russian operations there. You have the Russian Ministry of Defense and some other sort of like alternatives to Wagner trying to step in or assert control over Wagner to see assert kind of a more central role. Meanwhile, elements of Wagner are still operating there and still operating under existing contracts, some of which are seen in positive light by certain members of the public. Others see them as criminals and torturers and uh, uh, you know war criminals as the way they're framed in a lot of other kind of contexts uh, and there's a, the article frames it as there being a moment of opportunity uh, for Western security contractors and things like that to step into some of these holes because of disconsent with uh, Wagner and the fact that the leadership fight if nothing else signals lack of stability around Wagner I don't know if this is right or not I, I you know I don't have the expertise the one thing I'll say is that it makes a lot of sense to me that the fight that Prigozhin and Putin got into ultimately, and the way Putin resolved it by apparently killing Prigozhin, does seem like it's bad for Russia, right? Like it's a sign of weaknesses of Putin's control, if not terminal weakness, by virtue of the fact that you had in Prigozhin and in the Wagner operation, he set up a body that really was doing really effective things for Russia in Wagner and exercising influence. And that those sorts of management skills, those relationships are hard to capture. They're hard to reproduce easily. And he actually seems to have been good at it, as weird a guy as he was. And that when you suddenly start killing off the leaders of major corporations that work for you or they have affiliation with, it's not a sign of stability or somebody people want to build a long-term relationship with. And that's to Russia's detriment in the end. Um, so so my sense of that is that it's a chaotic situation and one that we don't have to wait to see what well, how it will shake out, but that it probably means that Russia's role and influence in these areas is weakened, uh, even if it's still maybe substantial. 
All right, here is our last question, which I confess I don't quite understand. And so I'm going to let each of you uh, interpret it for yourself. I'm curious, this is from Liz W., which media you consumed this year, A, where you are the hype man or woman, or B, just where you didn't quite get the acclaim. So, Scott, you get to choose wh wh whether you're in A land or B land and what the media is. What's, uh, what's your hype versus uh, didn't get the acclaim media this year? Well, I am going to go to a well that I've hit on a few times on the show before, but I'm going to hit again because it's just fantastic. And a new season just started and it's just amazing. Uh, and that's for all mankind. It's like my favorite show of the year is my favorite for the last couple of years. I think I watched it all this year. I can't remember. I started watching at the end of last year, or beginning of this year. Uh, it is a, a alternative history telling of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union that jumps 10 years every season. So it started in like the late sixties, early seventies, and now is in the two thousands, uh, entering into his fourth season. Um, I still need to catch up on the last few episodes, but man, it is just phenomenal. It's interesting. It's reasonably well acted. It, the first couple seasons did an amazing job, like building an alternate history by borrowing from real history. Like my favorite example of this is that when they talk about the moon landing, which happened in a different environment here because the Soviets beat the Americans to the moon, they borrowed from the actual speech written wrote Nixon wrote about Neil Armstrong and others if he written in the event that they died <laughs> uh, when the moon uh, when they attempted the moon landing and it failed and uh, so they actually had that speech uh, although it's what happened is a little more complicated than that so I won't spoil it for people um, it, it is really 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 compelling well done television that incorporates in, in these more recent seasons like a lot of like real stuff about the space race that is actually really relevant because we're entering this era where space is becoming a major area of development and contention again uh it's absolutely fascinating it does a great job with the science with the history with the politics i think a little sensationalistic but that's the nature of television i cannot be enough of a hype man for the show check out for all mankind i love it there's one really horrible plot thread that somebody warned me about that is annoying and terrible in seasons two and three not there anymore in season four good news guys so once the once you weed that out everyone will know exactly what i'm talking about when you watch it it's really stupid and terrible once you weed that out show's great really excited about it quinta are you a booster or a or a thumbs downer. A hater, I'm gonna try to break my streak of negativity by talking about things that I liked. So first off, I was looking at I do I keep a list of books that I read every year to encourage me to read more, which doesn't really work. Um, but I do have a list, and looking at it, I think I will put my my favorite book of 2023 as uh, Colson Whitehead's Crook Manifesto which is a sequel to another novel he wrote a few years ago called Harlem Shuffle. They're both excellent. They're sort of have the furniture of a crime novel, but it's really sort of a way of exploring the lives of these particular characters in 1960s and 70s Harlem. Whitehead obviously is an incredible writer and it's just kind of, amazing to watch someone working at what is so clearly the top of his game and like having a great time. So highly, highly recommend those. Um, in terms of other media, um, I have shouted this out before on the show, but I will point again to Our Flag Means Death, which is a weird little pirate workplace comedy slash rom-com that just finished its second season. And if HBO doesn't renew it, I will be very sad. So consider yourself on notice, HBO. Um, and in terms of music, I will point to the new Mitski album. 
um, which is called The Land is Inhospitable and So Are We. It is great. I did not so much care for her previous album. Sorry, Mitski. But this one was excellent, and I highly recommend blasting it at top volume while you do a bunch of chores around the house. All right. I have one. There's a totally underhyped uh, podcast that you all need to listen to. You may never have heard of it before, but I'm, I'm here to bring you into the light. It's called The Lawfare Podcast. And I got to say, it's everything it's cracked up to be. I, I mean, I heard a lot of hype about it. I've been hearing about it since the beginning. Um, the hosts are so smart and handsome. Yeah, exactly. And, so, you know, the, and the rare handsome podcast. Hosts <laughs> and and it's, um, you know, I, I, I started listening to it thinking, all right, this is, you know, not going to be everything people say and whatever. And it really just was. So I want to really direct your attention to the Lawfare podcast. You know, they, they can do no wrong. Well, folks, with those endorsements, we have come to the end of our time together for this week and this year until 2024. But this would not be Rational Security if we did not leave you with an absolute butt ton of object lessons submitted to us by our different readers. Quinta, why don't you go ahead and get us started with our first object lesson, or kind of pair of object lessons in this case. All right. This is submitted by Liz W., uh, who says that she would like to submit a game where she is the hype man. Oh, this is Liz. Liz also had our last question. So this is perfect. We have a beautiful segue. Um, So yes, Liz's game that she is hyping is called Pentiment, which she says she cannot recommend enough. It is a unique murder mystery that takes place in Tassing, which is in modern Bavaria during the Renaissance. The art is fantastic and evocative of the period. The characters are memorable and you can't really meta play that much during your first playthrough. It does a good job of inserting the player into the drama. A game where I did not understand the hype. Uh Uh-oh. I tried to play Outer Wilds, a game where the character explores a solar system stuck in a 22-minute time loop that ends with a star going supernova. That sounds alarming. What I learned about myself (laughs) is that I am too baked into the pre-autosave cloud and cloud backup period of gaming to ever play a game that restarts midway through its exploration. I just get stressed and frustrated. I will say I do not really play video games, but that sounds stressful and frustrating. So solidarity. I'm sure this game is every bit as joyful as this fanbase says, but as it was the first thing I thought of when my GP asked about my stress levels during my annual physical, (laughs) that's a bad sign. That is a bad sign. I will say, oh, yeah, we do not have Eugenia, our resident video game expert uh, on this episode, sadly. I uh, want to know good, her thoughts. Good endorsements. I know. I very, I like, I would love to play video games. Like I've said before, it's just never going to happen when I have children. But like, I'm looking forward to being a retired person in an era of video games. Like, I feel like that's like the era to be like, just get, really get into it. Time to make it happen. I feel like our generation will be like the people technically savvy to make it happen, which I'm excited about. I wrote a poem once about retired people and video games. Really? Well, this yeah. this this sounds this sounds was uh, it a you know yeah no no it was an ode interesting well I would say we should read it but I don't think we should but but we <laughs> should share it shouldn't <laughs> one day one day perhaps <laughs> well let me go on to our next object lesson this is from Jennifer from New York she says my object lesson for you to consider is a book I recently enjoyed called Palestine 1936 the Great Revolt and the Roots of Middle East Conflict by Oren Kessler. The book covers in-depth the state of affairs in British Bandite Palestine in the 30s and draws on recently declassified documents, uh, notably an interview with Churchill, and focuses on the Arab Rebellion. It's a good read regardless, but given the current Israel-Hamas war, it's particularly relevant at the moment. 
great recommendation. I am super intrigued by this and actually I'm probably going to go pick up a copy because um, this is, is a really fascinating historical period, the mandate period. Um, I've done some work on an undergrad when I was a Middle East Studies major and a little bit since and I've helped edit some some scholarship on an occasion. So uh, I'm intrigued by this. Uh, I'm intrigued by a, a deep look at it by uh, or the author who I believe is a journalist by training. So um, could be an interesting uh, look there. Ben, what do you have for us? Uh, from TM, who writes, my object lessons come from The Dispatch, an anti-reactionary conservative news website. The first lesson is Advisory Opinions, their legal affairs podcast, because it offers sober legal analysis and punditry. I want to see a debate between them and Trump trials team over Trump's legal woes, i.e. would a Supreme Court Section 3 decision make Trump's camp stronger or weaker. The second is The Remnant with Jonah Goldberg. It's thanks to him I'm an anti-reactionary center-right person. If you want a starter episode, try A Cynical Man, since it covers many of the show's themes. And finally, there's The Dispatch Podcast, which does weekly interviews and news roundups. Next recommendation is from Connor McGuire, who recommends the book Three Dangerous Men by Seth Jones, which he says is a great book detailing the current prominent military leaders in China, Russia, and Iran, examines actions that would happen in the gray zone, and proposes what the U.S. needs to do to counter their influence. And our next object lesson also comes from Connor, who gave us a troika of object lessons. This one is Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, uh, the book, not the movie, although I think the movie is good, too. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, David Gran is able to craft a mystery novel from a historical account, even though it was real life and occurred 100 years ago. It was a page turner that felt more like a thriller than a history book. I always do enjoy books like that because I am a dad, so I love historical fiction. Pass on the movie. It was meh. Okay. All right. Maybe not that great. Who knew? Uh, I'm also about to read the newest book, The Wager. If it's anything like Killers, then it will definitely be good. I've heard good thing about The Wager too. Classic dad book. It's about sailors. So get on it. Big ships, men at sea in the 19th century, everything a dad wants. And the last episode of the Troika is from, from Connor McGuire is The Prince, the podcast version a bit older and not sure if it's been stated, but it's a podcast from The Economist on Xi Jinping and his rise from shambles to being general secretary. I found it intriguing and maybe a look into the leader's psyche. I also find it intriguing how the form of government he embraces is the same government that imprisoned his father and forced his family into a life of shambles. And I will say just generally, because I've really appreciated this year and I've been meaning to do it as an object lesson, The Economist is freaking killing it at the podcast game right now. I've been like a lifelong subscriber to The Economist for a very long time. I was like embarrassingly young, like in middle school, given how expensive it is. It's like my annual Christmas present. But they have been doing phenomenal podcast series. The Prince is a really good one. They've got a ton that have been great. So highly recommend folks check that out. I feel like it doesn't get like enough attention for how high quality and in-depth they've been. And next recommendation is from Chad, who recommends the book Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People by Thomas Frank. And we have another book recommendation coming in for our second to last object lesson. This is from John Ragosta, a historian at the University of Virginia, Wahoo Wah. Happy to give this an endorsement to my fellow Wahoo of sorts anyway. Uh, has, he has just published a book for the people, for the country, Patrick Henry's Final Political Battle, where he looks through Patrick Henry's eyes at the development and ratification of the U.S. Constitution and the turbulent political period of the 1790s 
leading to the election of Thomas Jefferson as president. Again, one of my favorite time periods. I really like like the late 18th, early 19th century. Super interested in American history. So great. Looking forward to this yeah, book as well. Yeah, 1790s rocked. Rocked. Super interesting. We should rank decades for our next yeah, episode. Yeah, the, the, the 1790s are, were awesome. Yeah, There's a lot happening. A lot it was a busy happening. time. Super divided. We had wars. We had, you know, foundational stuff. It's good. All right. Liz W. gets the final object lesson, and it is LinkedIn, which she says is kind of my social network now. Question mark, question mark, question mark. My field is a little small, entertainment and games lawyering, but I get a decent smattering of dog pics and polite teasing because there is enough fear of impropriety that you can only be so trolly. So it's weird, but it's working for me. And I got to say, Liz W., that is about the only social network I'm not on. I don't know why, but I continue to be linked out or or linked off. And uh, so, but that's the best recommendation for it that I've heard. So maybe I will uh, activate my account and uh, send you dog pics. I would say all my private sector friends treat LinkedIn now like it's the new Facebook. They're writing like long essays about professional travails and like whole books on there. And I find it so strange because I do not engage with LinkedIn hardly at all. But one of my New Year's resolutions is to try and get back online at least a little bit, as I think I've kind of written off this whole social media thing Stay away, a little Scott. early. Run, I know, but it's been a few years before I've really tried very hard. And I think this might be time to re-engage at least a little bit now that there are slightly less toxic platforms out there like Twitter that people are actually reading. So perhaps this will be the year. Maybe LinkedIn will be my outlet. We will have to wait and see. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode and this year's episodes. But remember, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org in the year to come for our show page with links to past episodes for written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on X at RATL Security (laughs) and be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Benjamin Wittes of Lawfare. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Quinta and Ben, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next year. Dot, dot, dot. Until then, goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.